your Bibles to the book of Colossians. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1043. As usual, um, the Q&R phone number is active. If there's anything that you want to question or comment, we'll take a look at those after the, the study today. Um, let me pray real quick as we, as we settle into this text. God, your word is, is perfect and good and holy and um, life-giving. And God, this text, which is just the pinnacle of, of, of awe and beauty in Colossians before us, has the capacity to be those things for us this morning. And God, I pray that as we, as we read it, as we think on it, as we pull it apart and, and try to mine some of the um, exceedingly uh, dense beauty out of it, uh, that you would change us, that we would be formed by it, uh, and that you would um, use my words in, in a way that, that, that allows us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, who's seen the Lego movie? It's the best. There's a song in the Lego movie. What's the song in the Lego movie called? Everything is awesome. Who wants to sing it? Anybody? Carl does. <laughs> Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team, right? What that, that song does, the way it functions in the Lego movie, is it's formational for the people of Bricksburg. It's on all the loudspeakers. It's on all the TV shows. And, and what it does in, admittedly, a kind of nefarious way is teach the people of the city a certain set of values, a certain ethic, a certain way of living life. And that's the really amazing thing about music, is we write music, we sing songs, we record poetry, we create rhymes, because they get stuck in your head. And when something gets stuck in your head and it, it kind of goes over and over and over, after an amount of time, it shapes you. And this isn't something that we only see in the Lego movie, this is something we actually see in Scripture. Throughout scripture, there are these songs. Sometimes they're called creeds. Sometimes they're called hymns. And you know usually that you're reading one because all of a sudden in the middle of a letter, things get indented funny. You kind of go, ah, oh, that's weird. Like our passage today, if most of your Bibles probably have all of these verses kind of indented. Some other places where these hymns exist, 1 Corinthians 15 Philippians 2, 6 through 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16. There's, there's maybe a dozen of them, different Bible scholars have found throughout the New Testament. And, and what they are is they're indications of either the author of Scripture writing some poetry or 
bringing in some poetry that he already knew. Maybe it was a song that the Christian community sang all the time that he decided to write down. And they're a little hint into what Christians thought was important in the early church. Because most Christian people, they they couldn't read, for one, and they didn't have a New Testament. There was There were some Old Testaments. Maybe your church had a copy of the law and the prophets and maybe a couple letters. The Colossian church got this letter. But the whole Bible as we have it today, that wasn't a thing. And even if it was a thing, many of us wouldn't have been able to read it. And so the early church developed these rhyming, rhythmic songs to help everyone remember what is important about the Christian faith. This passage this morning is probably my favorite passage in the Bible. It's, a, it's like I said, it's a poem, and it was meant to be learned. It would have been a tool that either Paul wrote himself or he brought in from his previous experience that the Christians would be able to memorize, to learn, to deeply internalize. And Paul is going to recite it here, and then he's going to use bits and pieces of it throughout the rest of the book of Colossians. As we go through this book, we will frequently go like, oh yeah, that thing? Remember when he talked about that in the poem in chapter one? And so we could spend weeks here. We're not going to. But I want to take a look at three things that this passage of scripture tells us about Jesus. And they're they're this. Jesus, according to Paul here, rules the world. Jesus sustains the world, and Jesus reconciles the world. So first of all, Jesus rules the world, and he, he does this in three ways. The first thing we read is, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image. This is the Greek word icon. And it means a picture or an image or even an idol, like a a statue in a temple. The one place where this word, which is used all throughout the Bible, really stands out, and, and most people in the Christian community then, and hopefully you now, kind of your 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 light bulb goes off, is all the way back in the book of Genesis. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He made them male and female. If you, if you were with us last fall when we were in this section of Genesis, you, you know this, we spent a lot of time on this, but the story of Genesis is a very different story than any other ancient story out there. Every single story of the beginning of humans from the ancient world has human beings um, created as a slave caste. It's because the gods are either egotistical or they're busy or maybe they're lazy. They just need some lesser beings to do the ugly work for them. And so they create humanity. This is Mesopotamian and Babylonian and Egyptian literature. But then Genesis comes along and it tells a very different story. It says, no, God, the one God that made the heavens and the earth, he made human beings and he didn't make a slave race. He made people that looked like him. He made people in his own image. 
he created a picture of who he was and made these people rulers of his new world, both men and women. And it's a very different story than other beginning stories. And and it goes, it, it filters its way through the Jewish tradition and into the Christian community to today where we don't even realize how affected we are by it. The idea that human beings have value because they're created in the image of God is a biblical idea. And we live in this, this country, this culture, this kind of Western world that's like, yeah, humans have value. Of course they do. But we forget that that comes from the fact that we are made in God's image. Human beings matter because human beings look like God. Abortion, homelessness, war and violence, immigrants at the border, or just people that you work with that you do not like. All of us are made to be kings and queens called to rule this world together under the lordship of God. But Jesus, according to Paul here, he's not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. Paul says Jesus is what God looks like. We read a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impression of his nature. So Paul, in using this word and getting us to think back to Genesis, is doing this kind of strange thing. He's saying in some strange way, Adam and Eve were made to be like Jesus even before Jesus came. See, when Adam and Eve, when you and me, when we fail to trust in God as the source of our life, when we sin, when we act out in broken and rebellious ways, the eternal Son of God becomes a human being and lives out the kind of life that we all were called to live, but don't. And he does this not to condemn us, but to give us access to that life that he already has. So Jesus, according to Paul, is what God looks like, the blueprint for what we are truly meant to be. But he's not just the image, he is the firstborn, the firstborn over all creation. Many of you have children, and when you first got pregnant, you bought a baby book, and, and chances are you can open that baby book, and in that baby book, there's, there's pictures, there's probably a hospital bracelet, there's a lock of hair, there's a bunch of uh, notes and, and little maybe letters to the baby that's not born yet, and uh, there's just all of this stuff, and you know, first, first step and first word and first diarrhea or whatever, like all of it is cataloged in the baby book. And then you had your second child, and that baby book probably has a name that you had picked out that you crossed out because you changed your mind, and the rest of it is empty, right? Because this is what happens. The firstborn is important. The secondborn, eh. I'm sorry, all you secondborn kids. (laughs) I'm a firstborn. This is fine. Yeah. But the idea of being firstborn, like that's the way we think about it, right? That the one that is born first. 
And in scripture, firstborn can be literal. It can mean that there's a family and they have a child and the firstborn child was born first, but it can also be metaphorical. And when this word firstborn is used metaphorically, it doesn't mean chronological birth order. It means preeminence or priority or status. In Exodus 4, God says, you will say to Pharaoh, he's talking to Moses, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, Israel is a whole nation full of people, and they're definitely not the first people that God ever made. So what is God talking about? By calling Israel God's firstborn son, he's saying, Israel has prominence, preeminence, priority to me. In Psalm 89, 27, the psalmist is talking about David, and we read, I will also make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. Again, David, David's the last born in his biological family, but God says he will be my firstborn because he will be prominent. He will be important. See, the nation of Israel and the king David are key figures in God's plan to rescue and redeem creation. Paul is telling us that Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, is more important than the nation of Israel and more important than the great King David. He's even more important than creation itself. But how can we be sure that Paul is using this language metaphorically? If you're familiar with um, the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness church or some Unitarians, they would teach that Jesus is the first created being, that Yahweh God, the creator, made Jesus, and then Jesus made everything else. So how do we know that that's not what's being communicated here? Well, the very next verse in Colossians says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul doesn't give us the option of saying that Jesus was the first created being. There's no room in his grammar for that. Anyone that wants to argue that Christ isn't the creator of all things has to disregard what Paul actually writes here. But maybe more importantly, Paul is doing something that the New Testament does all the time, which is he is putting Jesus in the Yahweh slot. Yahweh is the name of God in the Old Testament. As Christians, we inherited the Jewish faith, the story of Israel. This is just a really good reason to read the Old Testament. If, you're, if you have a Bible reading plan, it usually starts in Genesis. And then if you're like me, we just kind of peter out around Leviticus because it gets weird. But power through that because the Old Testament is key to our understanding of the New Testament. Here's Psalm 148. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh. That L-O-R-D capitalized is the name Yahweh. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly armies. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. So according to Psalm 148, who creates everything? Yahweh does. According to Colossians, 
Chapter one, who creates everything? Jesus does. And so Paul is putting Jesus in the same position that the Old Testament authors put Yahweh. And so it doesn't make any sense to say, well, God created Jesus first and then Jesus created everything else. No, Jesus is God. He is the creator. And we see in verse 16 that he creates thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. These are names for spiritual beings, and we'll talk more about this later on in Colossians, but they're spiritual beings that animate systems of wickedness in the world. Again, when back in our Genesis series, when we were in Genesis chapter 6, we talked about these powers and principalities that are in the world causing mischief. This is kind of an aside, but I was reading this week and I came across a piece of of writing by a guy named Justin Martyr. He was a a Christian in the second century, a long time ago, about 155 AD, so about 100 years after Paul. And he writes a letter called an apology to the emperor uh, about what we're like as Christians, because he wants to set the record straight. There's a lot of rumors going around. And he warns the emperor of being deceived by demons. And he says that the Christians, they've been freed from the demon's grip in four different areas. And listen to this. We who formerly delighted in fornication, but now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts, dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and communicate to everyone in need. We who hated and destroyed one another and on account of their different manners would not live with men of a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies and endeavor to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live comfortably, conformably to the good precepts of Christ." So Justin, in his day, writing to the emperors, he sees the world enslaved by hostile demonic powers that manifest themselves as sexual promiscuity, occultic spirituality, greed and materialism, and ethnic strife. Does that sound like any other culture you know? Paul tells us in Colossians that everything in this world that seems to have power is ultimately under the dominion of Christ, the creator, who is God. And church, this is, this is not a secondary doctrine. I, I know those of you that know me know that I, I really appreciate the differences that we all bring to the table. We all have, come, are, have been brought up in different theological traditions and different cultural traditions, and I, I just really love that we can take secondary and tertiary issues and say, you know what, we're going to love each other in the midst of our disagreements, whether it's, you know, we talk about how salvation happens or the age of the earth or the end times, or there's, there's dozens and dozens of different things that we could argue about. And, and I like arguing, but I don't think it should separate us. This is one of the things that I will fight you on. I won't fight you physically because I don't believe in that, but I will fight you verbally. This is not a secondary doctrine. Jesus Christ 
is God. Jesus Christ is Lord of creation. Jesus rules the world. But what we read here is not just that Jesus rules the world he, and cr- created the world, he sustains the world. Verse 17, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. There is something about the nature of reality itself that requires the active work of God to sustain. The universe is contingent. It is dependent on Christ. Paul here, he's drawing on some Jewish thought from between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're unfamiliar, the Old Testament ends with Malachi, and there's about 400 years that go by before the story in Matthew gets picked up. But it's not that there's nothing written there. It's just there's no scripture written. But the Jewish people are, are still writing all kinds of stuff. And, and they don't generally see it as Bible, but they see it as valuable. Maybe think about how we would understand the writings of C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of us get our theology more from C.S. Lewis than the Bible. It's a different subject. Or maybe, maybe Eugene Peterson is a good example of, of, of a writer who has profoundly affected the sensibility of the Christian church, but, but didn't, didn't write books of the Bible. So I've got a couple quotes from a couple of those books. This is from the Wisdom of Sirah. Because of him, each of his messengers succeeds, and by his word, all things hold together. He's talking about Yahweh. The wisdom of Solomon, because the spirit of the Lord has filled the world and that which holds all things together knows what is said. So these authors in Jewish history before Paul were writing books and they were talking about God's wisdom and God's God's word being the active force that keeps the universe running. And everybody can kind of get behind that maybe. We live in a very spiritual world. But Douglas Moo has this comment. He says, the idea that an aspect of God's character or immaterial concept holds the universe together is a far cry from the startling claim that a man who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things are held together. This is an amazingly strange idea both back then and today, that there is a human being, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God right now, making sure the universe keeps going. What does that mean for us? All the good things that you have planned, you owe to Christ holding the universe together. Eat a good meal pursue a healthy relationship, step out into the marketplace and earn money. You can thank Jesus for that opportunity. But even crazier, every wicked thing that you have planned, you will presume on Christ's grace to allow you to do that. Every dark, selfish, prideful, brutal thing that we do as humans is done under the assumption that Christ won't just let go for a second even our capacity to run from him is predicated on the assumption that he refuses to run from us. He continues to hold reality 
together even as we continue to mess it up. Jesus sustains the world, but he also sustains the church. Look at verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. There is so much amazing about modern medicine. I was talking with with Craig before church about um, knee surgery. We do so many things, but, but sometimes there's a part of the body that just doesn't work anymore. And the, the word from the doctor is, we're going to have to amputate, take off a finger or a hand or a foot or a, a leg or an arm. And many, many people have to live lives getting used to that situation But what happens if the doctor comes out and says, we're going to have to amputate your head? I have questions, right? Like, say again. Because, see, I know that my body is dependent on my head. My body is dead without my head. And this is the way it is with the church. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. The Pope's not the head of the church. The Patriarch of Constantinople's not the head of the church. The General of the Salvation Army is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And if the life of the head is not making its way into all of the rest of the body parts, the body is dead. Here's some C.S. Lewis theology for you. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. The day that Jesus is no longer the point of all of this is the day that we are no longer the church. Because without a head... The body is dead. Jesus rules the world. Jesus sustains the world. And we read that Jesus reconciles the world. To reconcile means to make things right. And Paul tells us that he does this in at least three ways. Firstly, through his resurrection. The back half of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. This idea is a real sticking point for the early Jewish community because there is widespread belief in the time of Christ that the resurrection of the dead would happen all at once at the end of the age. We see this assumption in Mark 11. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So when the early church comes in and they start proclaiming that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead, the one that was raised to life before everyone else, it just breaks their categories. But it is a major part of the good news of the gospel. My wife and I, um, we got married in 2002 
in August. We didn't take our honeymoon until September. We went to Thailand. And we, I don't know if this is a good thing or not, but we took four other people with us. It was super romantic. Um, and one of the people we took with us was my friend Josh. And Josh was great because Josh had spent two years in Thailand as a missionary before we went there for our honeymoon. And so he spoke the language and he knew the customs and he knew the rest, the good restaurants and the places to stay. And so while we were going into Thailand blind uh, as, a, as a newly married couple with no understanding of the language, no understanding of the geography, no understanding of the culture, Josh was there who had gone before us and could help us get to where we needed to go. I don't know how many conversations we were a part of where, where two, two or three Thai people would be speaking in Thai in front of us. And later Josh would say, yeah, they were talking about you uh, dumb white people. And then he got to like interject with some Thai and it would totally mess them up because now they couldn't talk behind our backs because one of us could speak the language. I don't know how much money we saved. I'm sure it was a lot. But here's the thing, death, death is the great enemy of our souls. It is the primary thing, humanly speaking, that is wrong in the world. It is the one thing, and, and it, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, that every single human being, mostly in the history of the world, has experienced death. Generations before us have gone through death personally, and everyone in this room sooner or later will, will experience, witness death. It's one of the most normal things in human existence, but every single one of us knows deep down that something's wrong with it. And Jesus went into death on our behalf. And because he is God... Death couldn't hold him. Death is actually defeated by him and repurposed by Jesus to no longer be an enemy of life, but to be a conduit for new life. This is the, one of the things we celebrate in baptism. We're going to be baptizing people next week at Easter, and the baptism ritual it involves going under the water, representing our death with Christ, and coming up out of the water, representing our new life with Christ. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus, being the first fruits from the dead, entered into death ahead of us and came out on the other side. And now we have nothing to fear in death because we have Christ to guide us through it. Jesus isn't just reconciling the world through his resurrection, though. He's reconciling the world through his incarnation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness is something called a tautology. It, it's, it means saying the same thing twice. Like if you said, um, my hot water heater is broken. It's like the heater is making it hot. You don't have to say hot. 
Or if you say like, I'm, I'm in close proximity to this microphone stand. Well, proximity means close. You don't have to say close. To say all the fullness, well, the fullness is all of it. So all the fullness is just saying the same thing twice. But Paul says it this way because it's important. Paul's talking about the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, this time where Jesus is born the Son of God, the eternal Son of God that existed before time began in communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit as members of the Trinity. The Son takes on a human nature in Jesus. And everything that God is, is in Jesus. He's not part God. He doesn't grow up to be God. He's not God sometimes and just a human other times. He is all God. And this is another one of those die for doctrines. This isn't something that we get to um, have a difference of opinion on and still call ourselves Christians. There are a few things that matter a whole lot, and one of them is this. So what does this have to do with reconciliation? When there is a broken relationship, we often need a mediator, someone who can faithfully represent both parties, someone who is able to understand your view and also understand their view and and help bring you together what reconciliation is. And Jesus, who is all God and all man, is the only person that can do that. And he writes, says it this way, God put Jesus forth, Paul seems to be saying, as the place where heaven and earth overlapped, the place where the loving presence of the one God and the faithful obedience of the true human being would meet and merge and be realized in, time, in space, time, and matter. So Jesus is the perfect mediator who can live in both spaces, God's space and our space, and bring us together. And this is important, again, when we ask the question, where do we go to learn about God? If I want to learn about what God's like, what should I do? You should look to Jesus. Jesus is what God looks like. Douglas Moo again says, what is important is that this is now where all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found. And this is a difficult claim because it pushes directly against every other religious system or faith tradition out there. Us us Christians, we are incredibly inclusive because we invite anyone to come, just like Jesus did but we're also incredibly exclusive because we recognize that Jesus is the only one that gives us access to God. Conversely, when you and I as Christians believe things and act in ways that do not look like Jesus, we are walking out of step with the God of the universe. Jesus reconciles the world through his resurrection, through his incarnation, but also through his cross. 
Verse 20, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So according to Paul, what is the focal point of this work of making things right? It's the cross. It's by the work of Christ on the cross that peace, reconciliation, new life for those who are dead in sin, all of that is accomplished at the cross. And that reconciliation covers everything. Things on earth, things in heaven. And this is something that we all need to um, wrap our minds around. Because so many of us have been um, raised in a faith tradition that says something like, trust in Jesus so that you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And that's a very small gospel. It's true. It's absolutely true. You should trust in Jesus so that you can have your sins forgiven. But it's incomplete. See, the reconciliation that Jesus works on the cross is he brings peace to the whole creation. The Jewish word is shalom. And it means when everything's right in the world. Paul talks about it this way in Romans, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says in this poem that everything was made by Jesus, as he is the creator, and everything is going to be fixed by Jesus. Whether it's human infirmity or global catastrophe, man-made war or natural disaster, all of these things that constantly befall the world that is broken is all going to be fixed in Christ one day. And this, there's an oddity in here. I want you to imagine your neighbor um, backing their car into your mailbox, knocking it over. If you're like me, what you would like to have happen is for them to go, oh, I did a bad thing, and immediately get out of their car, go to your front door and knock on your door and say, hey, I'm so sorry, I hit your mailbox, Um, here's here's the money that it's going to take to get a new mailbox and set it, or or maybe like I know I've got a contractor friend and I already called him and he's going to be here tomorrow with a new mailbox and we're going to get it all fixed for you. Like, that just feels like the neighborly thing to do. A person is guilty, they recognize their guilt, and they take steps to make it right. But but imagine a different scenario where maybe your neighbor just didn't notice that they hit the mailbox, or maybe they did notice and they don't care. And they they run it over and then they look back and then they hit the gas and speed off down the street. But you're watching. 
and they get home later and, and you come over to their house and, and you go, hey, I, I just wanted you to know, I saw you uh, knocked over my mailbox and it, it, also, it also put a dent in your car. Can I, can I pay to have that dent fixed and I'll take care of the mailbox too? Like, you'd, you'd never do that. That's, that's crazy. Like, the, the, the guilty party pays the debt, right? David Powell says it this way about this passage. Instead of the guilty party initiating the process of reconciliation, Paul emphasizes that it is God, the offended party, who took the initiative while humans were still sinners. Romans 5, 8, and 10. Equally striking is Paul's emphasis on the death of Christ, which accomplished this act of reconciliation rather than on reparations made by the offending humanity. We are the ones that broke relationship with God. And not only does Jesus pursue us for the purpose of reconciliation, when we're either actively rebelling or don't even realize that we're rebelling, he makes the payment that we owed in order to make the relationship whole. He doesn't come to us and ask us for payment. He comes to us and says, I'll take care of it on your behalf. So if you're, if you're thinking that you need to get good enough or be godly enough or do something in order to really accept the offer of new life in Christ, like you're not understanding the gospel. Jesus doesn't pursue you to call you to account. He pursues you to pay off your account. And the mission of Jesus, the creator of the world, and the sustainer of the world is to reconcile the world completely into his kingdom of peace. Why did Paul put this poem at the beginning of Colossians, because he wants us to get it stuck in our heads. He wants us to be walking around at home and at work and at school, humming it in the background. He wants us to recognize that who Jesus is and what he has done for us is the center or should be the center of our thought life, our relational life, our business life, our financial life. It's a powerful text designed to be thought about, memorized, recited. And so I would just challenge you to spend some time, some more time this week with this section of Colossians, just reading it. Let it get into your head. Let it form you, that we would become the kind of people that are anchored in who Jesus is and are living new lives out of that reality. So we'll do a little Q&R. What does this say? What makes Jesus the head of the church and not the Holy Spirit or God the Father? If it's a trinity, wouldn't it be all three? 
yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, I don't want to talk about the Trinity. Because <laughs> if I say one word wrong, I'm a heretic. But, but here's the thing. There is a sense in which um, there's, a, there's a doctrine called inseparable operations, which says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, anything that one of them does, all of them do. So Paul, in putting all of this emphasis on Christ, isn't saying that Christ is the only one that does these things, that Christ is the creator and the Father didn't actually do anything, or um, Christ is the sustainer of the world and the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything or anything like that. Because in, in one sense, all of the things that God does, all of God is doing. What is standing out here, I think, is that Paul is making sure that everybody knows that Christ has been elevated to the same level as Yahweh, the Father, in the Jewish community, and that he is equal to God and also God the Father and also the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but I'm not going to. It's complicated. Let's see what else. Oh man, I've broken it. Can I use this number during the week for answers to my questions? I mean, it sits on my desk, so sure. Can you recommend an accurate, easier-to-understand Bible version for someone new to Bible reading? Sorry, kind of off-topic. That's fine. Yeah, um, I mean, we use the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, here when I teach, and I think it's a really great translation. It's, it's modern English. It's, it's readable. Uh, if you're looking for another good translation that's maybe a little more of an entry point, the New Living Translation is a good translation. Um, there's just there's going to be a lot of things when you're just starting to read the Bible that aren't aren't so much about uh, the readability. They're about understanding the context. And so uh, I would like recommend you refer people to the Bible Projects videos on YouTube because they do a really good job of, of creating a framework for people to understand Old Testament and New Testament context, and it really helps in in reading the Bible. Um, there's a couple of versions that are just kind of hard. The NASB is kind of clunky in its English. The, New, the King James Version is a great uh, time-tested translation, but it's written in a style of English that we don't speak anymore, which makes it kind of hard um, to understand if you're, if you're new to this. But that's kind of where I would go. It's a good question. We're going to take communion. And the communion meal is... representative of the means that Jesus uses to initiate his kingdom of peace by his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. While in some sense, Jesus is an innocent victim of the crucifixion, murdered by the powers of darkness, he is also the sovereign king orchestrating the events from before the beginning of time. And the power of God that is unleashed at the cross 
is the power that for the last 2,000 years has been reshaping the world, reconciling it to Christ. And Jesus says that this is the power that gives you and I new life. And so we remember the Lord's death every week until he comes. So I'd invite you to take the bread and the cup, this this picture of nourishment from Jesus that is reconciling you to God and reconciling you to one another. And take and eat when you're ready as we sing. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.